We're back for a new season that's been long overdue, and I'm really glad to be able to present you a bunch of new episodes. I've had a fair bit of time to reflect on this podcast, the whys and the hows, the name, the breaking point, and its significance for me and for this community. We all know that things change, people evolve, and so should this podcast. At least I believe it is time for a bit of a different approach. It was while editing this episode that we're going to listen today, the story of Sarah, that I got to really think about the process and the way I do things when it comes to this podcast, the way I present your stories, the way I edit your stories. Typically, for one episode of The Breaking Point, I record between two and three hours of interview, often intense, emotional, and always beautiful interviews. I then cut it to something like 20 to 30 minutes to make it more digestible, easier to understand for people who don't know the person. But then it kind of hit me. Should I really do that? Should I really do that all the time? So this is a bit of an experiment. I have decided to present a longer edit of today's story. I think it's for the best. It feels right. Sarah wrote to me last year because she wanted to share her story. It's probably less about a breaking point rather than years and years of painful erosion. It is the slow, silent, invisible from the outside, death by a thousand paper cuts type of suffering we're about to hear. And it is totally heartbreaking. I know that it is a story that a lot of you, us, can relate to because it is the story of a lot of women. Our sisters, our daughters, our moms, our wives. Women who disappeared into a life they just couldn't push away. Women who were controlled, smothered. Survivors. I was 21, 22 when I met my ex-partner. So that was back in around about 92, something like that, 92, 93. That hummingbird never sings. I sort of struggle a little bit to know what I was like back then. It was a long time ago. Um, but I've sat and I've had a think and, you know, I've always been a laid back person. So I know I was I was quite chilled out. I was laid back. Um, I was quite shy. Um, I remember spending a lot of my youth and my early 20s constantly blushing <laughs> just um yeah i was definitely shy you know I, I wasn't particularly academic at school the school i went to wasn't great and they did have a habit of um pointing out the children that weren't academic so I think maybe I had a few episodes at school where I was embarrassed. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it came from that. The one thing I do remember is I was, and still am, um, I was very affectionate and very spontaneous as well. And I love spontaneity and I always have done. And I remember I always used to just love to say, right, let's get up and do 
this or go there or, you know, things like that. I, I was always like that. I loved loving people. I I loved um, I loved to make people happy. I, it just filled me with. I I was I was called a smiler. I was when I was a child and a teenager. Um, I remember going into like there was a, a local shop and a local video store near me and when I used to go I used to go in with my dad and and the owner of both different owners of two different shops and he said oh here she comes Smiler and it was because I always used to love to make people feel loved and wanted and got a big kick out of that. I always got on with boys better. I did always have a small group of boys that I could count on as as my friends and they all liked me, and I think I liked being liked. So they sort of said, oh, do you want to be my girlfriend? And I said, yeah, why not? I don't think it dawned on me at the time what they meant, but I just liked being with people and like making people happy, so I just always had a boyfriend. I'd moved out of my parents' house in a bit of a blustery, huffy hurry <laughs> after a bit of a, an argument with my parents. I packed some bin bags and, and left. Um, I, I moved into, they used to have the nurse's residence um, in the hospital that I worked at. And um, I phoned them up and, and I said to them, I need a room. And they gave me a room and I got a new group of friends. Well, I got a group of friends, actually, because I'd never really had a group of friends before. And I'd got a group of friends who were all student nurses and they lived this what I thought was a wild <laughs> life and I'd never drunk alcohol before so they started to take me out or well I went out with them we'd all finish shift at nine o'clock and we'd go back and you know you'd get a quick shower shove the shortest tightest dress on you could then we'd all climb into a cab and we'd all um going to Liverpool and we'd go to, well, it was usually just the one club. It was usually the cabin. We'd go to the cabin, you know, sticky feet on the floor. Um, you know, you don't touch the walls. <laughs> you don't sit down anywhere. It's just gross and disgusting. And we'd dance. We would just dance. Well, I loved dancing. And that was the reason why I went. Um, but everybody would say, you know, oh, have a drink, have a drink. And, I, you know, I wasn't a drinker, but I'd say, oh, right, okay. So, you know, I'd have a couple of drinks and it wasn't much, but, you know, there'd be a few vodkas and then I was I was well gone after two or three vodkas. I was well gone and I really couldn't stand much more than that. But I would dance all evening. I wanted to do it all. I wanted to feel it all. I wanted to hold it all, touch it all, just get my arms around everything and have a go. But I was too terrified. It was just too scary. Um, it was too scary to drink alcohol. It was too scary to speak to people, speak to boys, speak to girls. I had at that point also been wondering if I found girls attractive as well, because I found myself looking and thinking, wow. <laughs> but I didn't know anybody like me, so... 
I just didn't do anything about it. But I was still feeling it and still wondering, but it was all too scary, so... I worked at, um, at a hospital and I met my um, was-to-be husband. I met him at the hospital and uh, we'd seen each other a few times on the ward. I'd seen him and thought, oh gosh, really cute. <laughs> He's really cute. And he kept smiling at me and he came across quiet but confident and he would always say hello to me in particular, or I, I felt it was that. We'd seen each other a handful of times, and then as I was walking off the ward one day, he followed me out and he asked me out. And he absolutely could have knocked me over with a feather because I didn't see that coming at all. And I immediately snapped, no. <laughs> and he sort of said, oh, okay. And then about three days later, he saw me again and he made a bit of a joke about it, about me turning him down. And he asked me again. And again, I said, no. <laughs> I think he was quite shocked and disappointed because I don't think anybody had said no to him before. The reason why I said no was because I just thought, oh, no, 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 no. You, I know what you're after and that's you're not just getting that you know he just wanted he was a doctor and I just thought doctors don't ask me out so you're only after one thing and you're not getting it and then over the next week I'd, I confided in a colleague who was sort of a friend at work and she said no 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 he's really lovely he'll have asked you out because you know he likes you so the next time I saw him, he didn't ask me out. And I went to him and I said, would you like to go out? So I asked him and he very, very quickly said yes. He laughed. And then the following week, um, we went out on our first date. My expectations of the evening was that I would keep in control. And um, and we would go out and we would have a meal and I would just get to know him and he would get to know me. And then at the end of it, probably we'd part ways and he'd realise that I wasn't his type. That was my expectations. <laughs> I remember it being really lovely, but he he allowed me to get drunk. And I had told him that I didn't drink much, but he kept pouring the wine and I kept drinking because I was having a good time. And I wasn't absolutely smashed, but I was pretty, I was pretty gone. So there's three things I remember from the date. Him just keeping pouring the wine. Two he held my hand. I never had anybody take me out on a date and just take my hand and hold my hand. And I just thought that was so lovely. Third thing I remember is I know how drunk I was. 
because we went back to his flat. You know, I can still see myself. We walked into his room. He sat on the bed. I pushed him back on the bed and I just, I just took my dress off. <laughs> I'm on top. And um, yeah, had a good cuddle. <laughs> and then after about 10 minutes, we stopped. And I'd, I remember just like coming to, the alcohol just stopped. And he just said to me, his words were, I think you better go home now. And I just thought, holy shit, I have totally made an absolute fool of myself and I'm ashamed of my behaviour and I'm probably going to have to see him on the next ward round and I don't think I can look him in the eyes and I did see him the following day. I was very red, very blushed, thinking, oh my gosh, he's either told all his friends or he's going to ignore me and he didn't. He just came to me and he said, are you okay? And I just said, I'm really embarrassed. And he said, don't be. It was okay. Um, and then, yeah, we did actually see each other pretty much straight away. And, um, and yeah, we had sex straight away. It became quite intense quite quickly even though he had a girlfriend. So he was from another part of the country and um, he had a girlfriend back at home and that he would go and see back every other weekend. And I knew about this girlfriend and I was happy with the fact that he was going back to this girlfriend because it took pressure off me. I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not a permanent fixture. I decided that I was going to move out of the nurse's home and I moved out. I'd been in there about a month and he turned up one evening and he said to me that he had split up with his girlfriend. And I remember thinking inside, oh shit, that's not really what I wanted. And he said, I've done it for you. And I just felt a sinking feeling. And then I felt sorry for him because he was sad. He did cry that he split up with his girlfriend. And I was, I was a bit confused, really, because I wasn't in love with him. I was a bit, uh-oh, I'm not sure I want, want him, wanted him to do that. But I didn't say anything. About two or three weeks after that, he turned up with a bag, he'd packed his bag and he said he was going to come and stay with me at my flat for a week. And again, I thought, oh, great. <laughs> and I let it happen. And then within six months, we'd moved in together. That was it. We were living together. thinking this really intelligent lovely man likes me <laughs> so I better keep hold of him and the talk in the family was 
Sarah's done well for herself. So I think I was starting to please the family. But I, do you know what? I, I did fall in love with him. I absolutely, you know, I thought the world of him and, and I did fall in love with him. I stepped onto this treadmill and I couldn't get off. And I just felt, I felt I couldn't say no. Yeah, I, I felt I couldn't say no. Our relationship was not that equal as in he was definitely in control. We always did what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it, where and how, because I was happy to just go along with that. I never ever sat there and thought, well, I don't want to do that, or I, you know, I want to do it this way. I don't think I ever once said or felt that. And where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do was always, I thought and felt was much in, more interesting than what I wanted to do. So we did everything his way. We had a couple of bust ups. When he got drunk, he wasn't a particularly nice person to be around. He was verbally aggressive and demanding. I do remember one evening, my mum and dad were away on holiday. I'd said that I would stay at theirs to look after the cats. So ex-partner and I, we'd gone out for a drink, he'd got drunk. It was something along the lines of he'd seen another young man looking at me and then he'd got jealous. A spiteful streak would come out, so he'd say something or... Um, I'm trying to think of an example, but it, it's difficult. There's a lot of stuff I've blocked out, really, but he could be spiteful when he was drunk. And I got to the point that he'd said something, and I thought, Do you know what, we were having such a lovely time, and now you've got drunk and you've said that, and I've just had enough because it's happened before and before. And I just said to him, I'm going home. And I walked out of the pub, and I walked back to Mum's house, he didn't think that I would actually walk all the way home. But I did, I walked all the way home. And I got into mum's and I went to bed. And I did wonder where he was, because I thought he might have followed. But I just thought, you know what, he's, he probably isn't. He's probably just sitting there having another beer. And then there was an absolute racket outside and he was banging on the door. Don't you ever, ever walk away from me. Don't you ever do that. And he absolutely was just horrible and I had to let him in the house because I was so embarrassed for the neighbours um, that was the first time that I saw that side of him at the time I would have definitely been thinking to myself that that was my fault because maybe I'd caught the eye of somebody um, so maybe you know I, I shouldn't have been looking Maybe I wasn't giving the attention I should have been to him. I did definitely think it was my fault. We were quite isolated. We were just a couple. We didn't have a group of friends. 
the people that we did see, we would bump into because um, we used to go out every Thursday night. Um, that was the, the NHS night out around here uh, in Liverpool was Thursday night and we would go out and we would bump into people. And the one thing that always did make me uncomfortable with and I did approach him about was whenever we went out, I was sort of left in a corner, <laughs> um, almost literally sometimes. And he was always surrounded by a lot of women and he always sort of would make a fuss you know, if there was other girls or other young women there that he, he knew. So he always was just sat with a group of women sort of thing. And um, the one thing I always remember from our relationship is I was never introduced. He would never, ever introduce me. And he would always say the same thing. Oh, I couldn't ever remember that person's name. So it's really rude, isn't it, to say, well, this is Sarah but I can't introduce you to the other person because I can't say, this is Sarah, but I can't remember your name. So he said, that's why I never introduce you. But that happens through the entirety of our relationship. You know, we would go out and there have been nights where we have gone out and I have literally sat in the corner for hours and watched him with a group of people. And he's never once come over and said, come and join. Or, my gosh, what are you doing sitting over there? Come here you know, and introduce me to other people. It just didn't happen. And literally feeling sick, literally thinking, oh, I, I just feel like a lemon stuck in the corner, but I can't do anything about it because I am frozen with fear. Clearly, they are talking about more intelligent things than he thinks I can join in with. So I'll just sit here because, you know what, I'm quite happy because I'm safe here. And you know what, Julian? I've held down a really responsible job. <laughs> I do at the moment. And I have led teams. I have worked farms. I have done all sorts in my professional life. I have taught schools full of teachers, all sorts of professionals. And yet, behind a closed door with this one person, I lost um just a film. we were away on holiday and we were in Scotland and he proposed and it was blowing a gale and it was raining <laughs> and when I came home and I told my dad told my mum and my dad my mum rolled her eyes which I couldn't understand and then my dad said to me, has that made you happy now? And I didn't really understand it at the time. But looking back, we had had quite a rocky time. And we'd had a rocky time because I didn't know how he felt about me. We had got to that point where he was sort of reeling me in. He loved me, thought I was wonderful. And then I would do something and he would get cross and then that would be it. He would spit me out. That's the phrase I, I used over the years. You know, you reel me in and then you spit me out. I mean, I do something wrong. So I think that's why dad said, are you happy now? And I was happy because a proposal of marriage said to me, he does love you and you are worthy and he wants to be with you forever. And I thought, right, okay, so he does. So 
shut up Sarah in your head with your doubts. He does love you. Let's say yes to this and let's go with it. Back then, I, I think I definitely, certainly five years into the relationship, which was when we got married, I think I certainly started to be careful about receiving love because he would give me love, but he would also take it away. And that is so painful when it happens time after time after time, like thousands of times. <sighs> yeah. The wedding was a lovely day. It was low key. It was just what I wanted. We had 40 people there and we went back to Scotland for a honeymoon. One thing I do remember, I can't believe I did this, but I was so thrilled and excited to be his wife that I cut the honeymoon short <laughs> because I wanted to come back and be, you know, Mr. and Mrs. and show the world how proud I was. We had two, two children together and the basics behind it are you have two children out of love. So you have to maintain, you have to work at that relationship and that love. So I, I always used to have this thing where every couple of weeks I would make sure that the children were put to bed before or just as he came home from work and we would have date night, I suppose, and I would make big efforts, you know, candles, you know, I'd make sure I wore something really nice, I'd cook a nice meal. And, you know, I'd do all that. And then, you know, I'd say to him, so how was work or what's going on in your life or whatever? And he'd talk and then he was never interested in what I'd done that day or that week, or he was never interested in, you know, um, where I was going with my career or, and he literally would switch off. And, you know, when that's done to you pretty much night in, night out, that tells you that you're not interesting, you're boring. And we'd also got to a point in the last 10 years of our marriage that the only time, and I can pretty much say hand on heart, but pretty much the only time he was kind and nice was when we were in the bedroom. And literally, you know, we would walk out of that bedroom on a Sunday morning and the, you know, the door would shut and, and I'd just feel sick because I'd be thinking, right, here we go. And he was just horrible. Sharp, nasty. Miserable, aggressive, Jekyll and Hyde. It starts off with when you're younger, not introducing you to a friends. Then it goes to ignoring conversations. <laughs> and then it ends up with the only time somebody's nice to you is when they've got you in bed.
you know, at one point, um, well, it was 12 years ago. So we've been together more than 10 years. He came home from work one night and he had been really, really low for a number of weeks, really low. And his job was very stressful, very difficult. I'd put it down. I'd, I'd put a lot of things down to his job. Every time he was grumpy, every time he ignored me, every time he was snappy or aggressive or um, one too many whiskies, I would say it's the job. And then I got to the point where I thought to myself, it's getting ridiculous, can't keep blaming the job. And then he came home one night and something was really wrong with him. And we sat in bed and I held his hand and I knew he was trying to tell me something. I said to him, come on, it's okay. Really, honestly, whatever you have to tell me, I'm here. I'm the person you turn to. It's okay. And I didn't see what was coming. I was naive. And his exact words were, I've fallen in love with somebody. And I don't think I love you anymore. And I remember keeping hold of his hand and my first reaction was to feel sick. And within a millisecond, I immediately thought, how horrible and hard must have that been for him to tell me that? And, <laughs> and then I thought, oh, oh, right, okay. So how am I going to make him love me again? He said nothing had happened. They were just friends, although he had told her how he felt. I was brave and I rang her up. <laughs> um, and I rang her up and I just said, listen, if you want him, have him, because she was a lot, lot younger than me. And I just said, I can't compete. So if you want him, he's yours. And she said she didn't want him. So I thought, right, okay, that's fine. You don't want him, I do. Three years ago, I was quite poorly. I had flu, which I know doesn't sound that bad under the circumstances um, for 2020. But flu, when you get it properly and it's bad, it's pretty nasty. So I had flu and I was well, I was bed bound for 10 days. A couple of days before then, a couple of days, probably about a week before then, we were driving in the car, I was driving. And he used to do this thing where he would, he would goad me when I was in the car. I don't know why he did it. Maybe it was because I was, you know, it was a confined space and there was no way I could get out. And he was goading me. I wasn't driving to his standard. And I'd really had enough. And I got to the point where I was going to say something. So I did. And I just turned around and I just said to him, you are a bully. Just stop it. And I said it almost exactly like that really clear, very slow, trying not to be emotional. Because if I got emotional, he would always say, 
that I was just an emotional wreck. And it shut him up. But then I, I got the flu about a week later and we hadn't spoken in that week at all. He was so angry with me, so cross. And not once in the two weeks almost that I was in bed and then a number of weeks afterwards, not once did he speak to me. Not once did he say, do you need a paracetamol or a cup of tea? Not once did he check me over. And it was actually my daughter who looked after me. She was 17 at the time. It was a few weeks afterwards, she said, I asked Dad to come and look at you, and he just laughed in my face, Mum. Because I'd stood up to him and called him a bully. He hated me. He must have hated me, because you would never treat another human being as he treated me then. And it took me seven weeks to get over that flu. And in that seven weeks of me getting over the flu, I decided I was going to leave. And I was broken hearted that I'd got to that point. And I was terrified because I was terrified of his reaction. And I knew I would have to leave quietly one day when he'd gone to work because otherwise he would persuade me to stay. How on earth was I going to tell the children that I was going to leave? I had no idea. They knew how bad things were. Even our son, who was younger, who was still at school at the time, said to me, Mum, I don't know why you're still here. I don't know how you've stayed for this long. And that was very difficult to hear from my son because I felt I'd let him down by staying. I felt I'd let him down as a mum because he must be looking at me thinking I'm weak and I'm pathetic because I've put up with this. In the seven weeks of me recovering, I just sat on the internet and just ploughed job site after job site after job site. I was working at the time, but I was working part time. And in my profession, a lot of the, the money in the voluntary sector had dried up. So I needed something. I knew I needed something that could pay a rent. And I finally found a job. I started my new job in March 2018. And in May, a policeman knocked on my door. and told me that my husband had been hit by a car whilst out on his bike cycling. And I needed to get in the car with him straight away because I didn't know whether he was going to survive. And he took me to the hospital from the top lip upwards. He broke every bone and his nose was just gone. And in that moment, I did not want to leave. And I knew I wasn't going to leave. 
And then I had this tiny little voice in the back of my head, this cruel voice in the back of my head saying, well, how are you going to leave now? And I just thought the the bigger voice in my head saying, well, you're not going to leave. There's no way you're going to leave. I don't want to leave. I need to be there. And we need to get him better. I stayed for another year. All the way through that, I honestly, totally believed that he would wake up and just think, wow, okay, I've been a shithead and I'm going to be the best dad and the best husband. And that didn't happen. He just went back to being miserable and spiteful and aggressive and jealous and ignoring the children. And I fought for a long time with myself because I just thought people are going to think I've left him because he looks a bit different. But I couldn't continue to live with a man who treated me like he treated me. When the accident happened, my sister, my sister and I are very close. And I remember she just looked at me and she literally, she got my head in her hands. And she just said to me, Sarah, give it a year. That's all you need to do. Give it a year. It'll probably change him probably change his life. He'll look, he'll wake up and he'll think, oh my God, what have I done? And she said, if it doesn't, then the plan is still there and you can leave. It's okay. And I honestly thought we would be fine. And I, there's always hope. There's just constantly hope. Every time, you know, he was horrible or he was manipulative and then there'd be something nice afterwards. So there was always hope. You know, and and it's also it, it almost feels like now when he made his recovery, it was like right, I don't need you now, Sarah. You know, and I was just cast aside. So at that point, I thought to myself, right, okay, if you don't need me, I need me now. felt I needed to time my um, leaving the matrimonial home, making sure that everything around me was... So basically, I waited until my children had got to a point either at college or at school where they had left so that there were no exams coming up. So I didn't, you know, make too much of a mess for the children. And I woke up one morning, um, you know, we'd had a little bit of a, a bust up the night before and I felt horrible about it and I just thought I can't do this anymore. So I got up, he went to work. I told children I was going to stay at my sister's. There was space just about for them to come with me if they wanted to but I understood if they wanted to stay here for whatever reason they felt if it was because the Xbox was here if it's because 
dad was here, if it was because whatever, it was okay. And they both said, we will come and live with you, mum. And I packed a bag and I wrote a letter to my husband. And I just said that I couldn't, I couldn't live treading on eggshells anymore. I didn't think he liked me. And I needed time away to understand whether I wanted to be in the marriage any longer. And then I got in the car and I went to my sister's. I needed that space at my sister's to clear my head because whenever I was with him or near him, I had this tornado in my head that would not stop and I could not think clearly. There was just no clear thought process at all. So the only time I could think straight was away at my sister's and then I would come back and then I was able to talk to him. I had nothing to lose anymore. I had no shame to feel, although I did feel it. When I, when I wasn't with him, I felt it because I felt I'd left my husband. And I don't do that. I'm not the type of person who does that. But I left him, so I felt a huge amount of shame. And I'd come to the conclusion after being at my sister's for about two months that I needed more time away from him so that we could work at getting back together. And I know how odd that seems to some people. But when you're living in a pressure cooker for years, and we had been together a long time, your marriage doesn't get fixed in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. So I told him that I was going to rent a house for six months, only down the road. And that I would live there and that would enable us to then work at coming back together. And he just said, no, it's all or nothing. So I made the decision. It was just huge, huge, hugely difficult because for the first time in the relationship, I felt I'd got control. So part of me didn't want the control because it meant I was to blame. I was leaving. I left on the 15th of June, so um, just about a year and a half. And I tell you, the day I left, the release of pressure was huge. It was really scary. It was a release of pressure. I had no idea how controlled I had been. It was all very subtle, and I don't know whether I've actually managed to get any of it across, really. Because I haven't been, I don't think I've told you many big controlling things, but because it was little things, you know, I mean, 
simple little things like standing in the kitchen watching me cook, telling me I'm not using the right knife, I'm not cutting things the right way, the pan's not on correctly, the door's not shut, you're not making the fire right, you're not doing, oh God, you could never do anything right. So when all that went, what are you? <laughs> when it all goes away, what are you left with? If I'm really, really honest, I wished that I'd tried even harder to make it work. Um, I wished he'd have said, yes, let's keep trying. You go and live down the road and we'll keep at it. Why do you think it's so important for you or it was so important for you to make things work? And was it too difficult to just, you know, come to the conclusion that, well, you know, it's, it's not working? Because it's the right thing to do, I think. Sorry, I'm going to be a bit blunt, but says who? Yeah, my sister said that. <laughs> but it is, it just, it just, it's the right thing to do. I don't know. I don't know who says that, but isn't it the right thing to do? I just got so tired. going to tell you something big that I did for myself that makes me feel like a free woman and there's only you and anybody else who's going to listen in future if you can be bothered to go through this oh my god I've always wanted to life model nude modeling for artists I've always wanted to do it. I don't know where it's ever come from, but even in my younger days, I wanted to do it. It's so beautiful. Um, and a few months ago, I found a local art group and they welcomed me in. It is absolutely amazing. And the freedom I have experienced from life modeling just blows my mind. Because then you know what? They're not looking at you. And that sounds crazy because of course they are. <laughs> but they're not looking at me. They're just looking at the lines I make. And tiny little details. Toenails or the crease at the back of your knee. And... They see you in all your complexity. Oh, yeah. It's the most wonderful experience. I feel free. I definitely feel happier than I have done in more than a decade. I feel excited. I'm frightened sometimes. And I'm trying to work through that. And I'm not frightened of the future at all. Are you frightened of love? Yeah, <laughs> I am frightened of love. 
because love is painful, too painful. And I'm sad sometimes um, because I've got so much to give and I sort of don't know how to give it anymore. The story of Sarah has deeply, deeply touched me for many reasons, but I think also because I am a man and that basically there's something in the patriarchal system, the way things work, that invisibilizes people like Sarah. I have, you have heard that story before, yet it still happens all the time. It is that notion of, you know, women are here to please, to heal, to support, to follow. Things are changing, thankfully, but it's still there. That notion of being a pleaser, it was ingrained in Sarah very early on. I mean, it's not a bad thing in itself, of course, but the problem is how society, the system we're living in, it turns that trait of character into a way to be for women, a reason to be, a status rather than a quality. I hope very soon one of us will bump into Sarah in a club in Liverpool or somewhere, then sing the night away, not a care in the world reconnecting with her old self and maybe with some of her old interrogations. Thank you for listening to the Breaking Point podcast. We will be back soon for a new episode.